Hello and welcome. You're listening to Southern Reverend, a podcast from a pastor in Georgia about the Christian faith, work in ministry, and life in the South. Whoever you are and wherever this finds you, I hope that you walk away with something meaningful to take with you. I'm your host, Joel Mooneyhan, the pastor of Community and Spiritual Formation at Atlanta Christian Church in Atlanta, Georgia. This week is a second part of a two-part conversation with my good friend and brother in Christ, Nathaniel Cheeks. These were recorded four years ago at his home in Kentucky. I thought I had lost them, but I found them again, and so I wanted to share these with you. On this episode, we talked about our winding roads following the call of Christ into ministry. We had a good time doing these. I hope it's evident, and I hope that you enjoy them as well. And so without further ado, here we go. Seminary almost 10 years ago, which is weird to think about. That's insane, actually. <laughs> yeah. It was wow before 2007 semester started. Probably, yeah, somewhere around there. Like that. Yeah, because we met at that, uh, the poker thing. Yeah, January 2007. Well, I won a square gun. <laughs> and then we went and threw the frisbee around the next, the next day. But no, I don't know. You know, we started seminary, I started seminary with the intention that I would do full-time ordained ministry in the Methodist Church, and I'm not doing that now. For <laughs> the, <laughs> the journey changed things up a little bit. Um, Don't stop. I try not to stop, but just over the course of seminary and experiences I had, working in church and working out of church and just as life has progressed, my sense of calling changed. My sense of what it means to be a ministry has changed. And I know that yours has too. So when did you get the sense in your life that seminary was the direction that you were headed? Well, let's see here. I guess first and foremost, the journey started... When I was younger, my parents used to say, God told us when you're older, you're going to be a preacher. And I used to tell them, yeah, right. That sounds awful. Who would want to give a speech every week? I'm not doing that. Joke's on me. Yeah. And guess what? um, When I was 15 at Camp Galilee is when I felt that God was saying, hey, Nathaniel, I'm calling you into ministry. And I was just kind of like, well, crap. And because um, I knew that that just kind of my life from that moment on was changing. But it was at that moment that I felt like I was calling me into ministry that at 15, that's when I decided seminary is where I'm ultimately going to be going. Um, just And the reason I thought that at that moment is just because that's the path my dad took. He went to seminary because he was a pastor. So I knew that that's where I'd be going. So that's, yeah, that's when that, that journey kind of started for me. And I started looking forward to that, that point from, from then until I got there. When I was really little, I used to talk about wanting to be a preacher like my dad. And then as I got older, the more I explored just my faith and ministry as, as a thing that I was doing, it grew, it more and more grew into something that I legitimately felt like, well, that wasn't just me saying that as a little kid. Like, there had to have been some truth to it that I wasn't aware of. Because that's where I really started legitimately feeling like I was going. And even into college, I'd, I'd had my eye on that pretty much the entire time. And I was a, there was a moment where I nearly decided not to go to seminary. And then I went to a dinner that Asbury had at Hillside United Methodist in Woodstock, Georgia. And at the time, it was uh, Jeff Greenway was the 
uh, president of the seminary. And he spoke, and um, another guy, Maxie Dunham, who I, who I had become uh, acquainted with, was also there. And over the course of that night and some of the conversations I had, it became clearer to me that this really was legitimately where I really needed to go and explore. And, and sure enough, I, I you know applied and got in. The interesting thing is that I, I had applied, and... Uh, they assigned the admissions counselor to me, you know, and we had a bunch of conversations and, uh, I said something about coming up there for a campus visit. And I kept talking about coming up there for a campus visit. And he said, you keep saying coming up here. Are you planning on going to Orlando or Kentucky? I said, Kentucky. He said, Oh, we need to get you a different <laughs> admissions counselor. Cause the whole time they, they'd had me assigned to somebody from Orlando. I don't know why they, anyone had its how they must have had a reason for thinking that but it was just kind of a funny moment where all of a sudden I was oh I need to be having all these conversations with somebody (laughs) it was awesome nice well you touched on this a second ago but how much do you think living in a pastor's family affected your sense of call like were there experiences prior to seminary because of that that prepared you for it or yeah I mean number one I mean, I grew up in the Methodist church and from like a theological standpoint, I, I, I fall in line with a lot of Methodist theology, uh, love John Wesley, but through experiences of being a PK in a Methodist family, the age and being in high school, I decided I didn't want to be in the Methodist church because there was, I was exposed to seeing too much behind the scenes stuff that I didn't want to be a part of, too much of the politics that I didn't want to be a part of. And so for me, at that point, I remember prior to graduating high school, honestly, I didn't know what that necessarily meant for me because it had been easy just to say, okay, my dad's already laid the blueprint out. This is what I need to do to do to fulfill what I felt the call of my life was. But I felt God was saying, hey, I want to use you for full-time ministry. I called you to proclaim my word uh, and as far as the details of what that was going to ultimately look like, I didn't know. And I was, I was just like, well, I'm not, I'll worry about that when it comes. But other than that, I mean, yeah, there's tons of experiences that shaped me, prepared me for when I got to seminary. I, I mean, I remember preaching my first sermon in high school when we did a youth service in church. It was incredibly awful. Um, <laughs> but even in those moments, how God's using them to to prepare me for what's to come. I remember the camp that I decided where I decided to go in ministry. I touched on this in the in a, the previous podcast I did with you that I had an insecurity when I first decided to go into ministry about trying to measure up to how good my dad was. And prior to seminary, I would turn down a lot of opportunities to speak. And so the camp director, who I was a counselor after I was a camper, and the camp director, she just put me on the preaching schedule for the week. She didn't ask me. She just she just put me down because she knows she knew if she asked me I was going to say no and she felt that God was you know leading her just to say you know have the thing I'll do this type of thing and I'm glad she did and that was a a, kind of a a breakthrough moment for me in a lot of ways and so there was always those glimpses of God giving me a taste of what was to come prior to seminary and prior to being actually in full-time ministry but I would say the biggest is just being a part of a a pastor's family, knowing some of the things that, how I saw, and Methodist Church is just what my experience was. Right. I, I mean, I honestly, I, I lump it together as just kind of the way the American church has kind of become. That's not, as I, and I use this generically, like it's not what I was reading in scriptures of how the church was supposed to operate. Sure. And I wanted to be a part of something different, which is kind of scary. And, yeah, definitely. Um, because I kind of felt like, where, where where's the 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 map, road map or the blueprint to show me where I need to be or what I need to do next? But yeah, so there was definitely those experiences prior to. Yeah, and it's interesting the um, when you have people like that woman who put you on the preaching schedule, where sometimes it is the person who who is who has a sense of what you're called to do or what your, where your graces are that you can't see for yourself. 
because either because of your insecurities or because of your the baggage that you're carrying <clears throat> or just because no one's in some cases there are people who no one's cared enough to take them under their wing yeah. and just say you know I see this in you and there's something there and I can think of a few people in my life who in various times were that kind of voice of encouragement to kind of cut through the noise for me too I got real involved with the Methodist church stuff as early as like freshman year of high school and I would go to annual conference and I went to general conference twice and for me you know those were some of the things that really kind of caused me to step back and kind of try to get an aerial view of some stuff because I had seen it so close and such an intimately familiar place with the inner workings of how everything was and there came a point during seminary really where I thought I gotta I need to stop and just kind of take a few steps back and really see this thing for what it is and that's when like you were talking about with reading scripture and how you don't really see what is going on in the early church and how the church was formed and and then granted as culture changes or as a movement changes, some of those things are going yeah. to change. Yeah, for sure. So I'm not saying we need to always hearken back to that, but there was a sense of God's leading, no matter how scary it was, that I'd started not to see in some places where people just wanted to argue things to death and have committees and task force and, and all this other stuff. And I thought, why don't we just really listen for the heart of God in this? And that's where things kind of started shifting for me. Now, the seminary, the, kind of the important thing about seminary is that it's it's a very formative experience. And a lot of people talk about going to seminary and having their beliefs just completely deconstructed and having to rebuild them. Some people talk about seminary as a place where their beliefs were challenged but not eroded, and they were definitely bolstered and strengthened in different ways. And that obviously depends, obviously depends on the person, but also where they go. I was raised United Methodist also. John Wesley's a... <clears throat> I didn't realize until I went to seminary and really dug into it how much of John Wesley's theology had shaped what I what I believed about mm-hmm. God and about grace and about what it meant to do kingdom oriented work. Yeah. Did you find seminary challenging? Did it strengthen any beliefs? Did it change anything that you did believe? Like how was that for you? Yeah, I would say like my core <clears throat> beliefs, like what I ultimately hold true no, what no, who I believe God to be, like that stuff, but some of the peripheral secondary theology type stuff did did change a little bit just because you're exposed to these amazingly brilliant professors that have their experience in like just interpretation of scripture, so and I've told you before that you know for me, like in high school, like very literal interpretation of literally every aspect of scripture. And then after like taking some Old Testament classes and understanding the context of situations is important, understanding the type of narrative that's being written, whether it's poetry or a historical document, those things matter. Mm-hmm. And it matters what is being written and how we understand what is being written. And so in that way, yeah, I think it just made me uh, understand and help me be able to exegete passages better. Um, but as far as my core beliefs, no. Now, I did find it interesting, challenging in some way. Like I remember the first week I was at seminary a guy came up to me and asked me about my home church and at that time my dad had retired from the Methodist church and he was now a pastor at a non-denominational church and so I was telling him like yeah my dad's a pastor at a non-denominational church and this guy retorted back well I think non-denominational churches are wrong because there's no accountability and he did so in a very like I don't know it really caught me off guard like I just there's not what I was expecting Right, why was you just like, um, immediately just open up and this like, I just, in that moment, it was one of those things where I kind of like, I get, um, I kind of let my guard down because I was uh, just the nature of, you know, seminary and I just wasn't um, a time where I thought that I was going to get a combative answer like that back and it's just kind of like one of those moments of, like cashing your pearls type of thing. Right. So in that way, it was kind of challenging because for most of my life, I I guess maybe I was just surrounded by people that came from the same type of, um, we all, I was just in the same type of, you know, context of people that kind of believe the same sort of thing. And now I was encountering someone who was at seminary for the same reasons I was, but viewed, viewed something extremely different than I did. Right. Like for me, 
I like my non-denominational church, but clearly he thought it was completely the wrong way to do church. And so that was interesting just because even in the midst of a seminary that was based upon Wesleyan, you know, theology and doctrine, you still had a very vast difference in some, some things. And that was challenging, not in the sense of, did it change what I think or anything like that, but it was challenging in the sense of what, when are, what arguments are worth having and at what times and what hills are worth dying on and what are not. And, yeah. um, honestly it helped me become better at reading situations of in dealing with those when people want to challenge your beliefs. Okay. Or why are you wanting to challenge what I believe? Is it because you need to slam down my throat what you think right. or because you would have a general conversation? And you can tell the difference. Yes. By the way much. people affect, if people start throwing things at you and throwing statistics and throwing just their opinion. I mean, statistics and opinion can all be shaded and twisted to make make anything. I mean, you can take a same set of statistics and make them say anything you want. And when someone comes at me like that and anything, I'm like, you're not really, you don't want to hear what I have to say. And you're not really interested in learning anything from mm-hmm. each other. You want me to tell you that, I'm, that you're right. And I'm not going to. <laughs> but if somebody... To me, the, the biggest marker is when people want to ask you questions. Because if they're asking questions, they want to hear your perspective and kind of balance it against their own. Mm-hmm. And I've gotten way more enriching conversations from people like that. And and not always shifted my views completely, but definitely seeing the other side or at least having an appreciation where you don't just think they're wrong because or they're they're wrong. It's because they're stupid. It's they've seen things and then their experience tells them that mm-hmm. there's something completely different than what you, the conclusions you come to. And that's okay. Yeah. And I just want to like, one thing I, I, I do want to say, like in terms of one of the things I loved, loved, loved about seminary, my old Testament professor, Dr. Richter said when she's like, you know, most of us in the classroom, she goes, you guys know the biblical stories. She goes, but essentially your closet's just a, it's a messy closet and her purpose was to put her closet in order. And through classes like that, where she put all those things in order, it, it strengthens like the story as a whole by putting all those things in order. And so that's what it strengthened. It strengthened just the core beliefs that I did have. It made them stronger because now I had a better grasp of what what they meant and why. And so those super valuable experiences and those professors were great yeah mine uh my brain melted when i took david bowers class on matthew i mean i i remember going to that class and leaving and i was just floored just astounded at how how much there was because again you you have to learn to read the bible in terms of what each individual part is and if something is some things are narrative and some things are correspondent and some things are poetry and some and you, it matters how you read them like we were talking about before. But even granted that, and you know that Matthew was written by, you know, you had the, each, each of those is a different voice telling a story. But then learning that, learning all the baggage that, that comes with that and everything that that person, that person came to the table with and what they were trying to do with, the story and mm-hmm. what realities they were pointing to. And he just <laughs> opened it up. And there was so much more even than I had. You always think the Bible is such a big, rich book. But then when you hear somebody who's so much more well-studied and disciplined and breaking it open, you realize just how much you yeah. don't actually know. But it was cool. That was that was one of the things that really it inspired me. Really, it's, it's, there's there's so much more to this than yeah I had even given it credit for. And learning that stuff doesn't translate the same way. There's a lot of stuff that we don't get because of the way things are translated. And for a lot of people, I think that can be a reason to doubt or to be skeptical. And to me, it became a reason to be critical, but not. I mean, not like in a a, a not in the negative sense, but in a really paying more attention to everything that's happening 
and kind of challenging you to, to go deeper than that. But I also think that there wasn't a lot for me, like you said, that just completely, utterly changed. But definitely my sense of what the church is and what it should be was it's different now than when I went in. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's even different now than when I left, when I graduated, but certainly different now uh, from 10 years ago. So we both graduated, and I think it's fair to say that we both had kind of an odd pathway yeah. in ministry since then. And we've both been in and out of traditional ministry settings, you know, either working for a church or volunteering for a church, in seminary and out of seminary. How do you view your call now compared to when you were in seminary? What have been some of the, the victories, the frustrations, the setbacks, the things that have propelled you forward? How has that looked? Yeah. Well, I like early like earlier on I said because I wasn't going the route of the Methodist church, it wasn't like there's like this blueprint or map of how I thought, you know, how I was going to enter ministry was gonna be. So honestly, even now it's just kinda of like I'm still just kind of figuring it out. Like I'll when God when I feel God is leading me somewhere I'll go. But in terms of what the next step is, honestly I don't ever really know. But when I graduated seminary, I took a, I took a job. It was in a Methodist church. It was doing sports ministry, and there was the you know the traditional sense of you know I worked at a church every day, and you know I actually was there for just a year, and it was a very successful ministry in terms of financially, and the church saw that, and they wanted me to make some decisions at the expense of ministry, but for the benefit of mon- money, then I couldn't. Yeah. And so I said I was fired from that position, and that would kind of shook me to my core for a couple of reasons. Because one, it was my first real job out of school ever, and to get fired from that was kind of a crushing blow to the ego. Of course, um, and that was tough. Well, and also having made such a big step. Yeah, I mean a geographical step. Yeah, yeah, moving my life across the country. Um, for that job and um but two like even though i've been exposed to the church and some of the behind the curtains type stuff all my life and why i didn't want to be in a denomination necessarily it still was like the decision being made or they wanted me to make i couldn't comprehend how why you would want to the sole purpose of why we we do what we do is to reach people for jesus and to sacrifice some element of that because we can bring in fifty thousand more dollars i can't i can't i just i couldn't understand that and so i was kind of lost there for a couple months and then i started helping you know for free i became like the young adult essentially the young adults minister at a church plant down in texas and but then i had to get a job at, at a bank and i was working in a cubicle monday through friday and it was a major struggle because it was like, God, you've called me into ministry. And yeah, I was, I was doing ministry, but there was that struggle of like, I'm working in this cubicle and this is not what I was created to do. Right. But then there's also this, this ego aspect of it. Like to me, ever since I answered the call in ministry, it was, I was going to be pastor and in that moment, I was not pastor. So what what is the issue? Is it because people aren't referring me to pastor? Because God's who ordains me. God's who right. calls me into service. Yeah. And in God's eyes, I am what he's called me to be as long as I'm following his heart, regardless of what the world sees me as. But my there was just elements of pride that I struggled with that. That you have this seminary degree and... By education, yeah, I should be a pastor, but I am a, I'm a banker working in criminal activity and spotting criminal activity. And so that was a struggle. Came back to Kentucky, was working in a traditional church setting again as an associate pastor. And then a buddy of mine called me and asked me to help him with the church plant. And so that was going to be no income. And so I then I had to get another second job and just started working doing an after-school program with at-risk youth. And so it's been this kind of bob and weave, but in and out. And ultimately, 
where I am now is not where I thought I would be when I first when I first felt God saying I'm calling you to be my pastor, be a pastor, and to proclaim my word. And I'm still trying to figure that out, what it's what it's always going to entail. But ultimately, as I said, like God is who ordains me, and He's going to present me with opportunities regardless of my setting. It doesn't have to be vocational ministry, because regardless of whether I'm being paid for ministry and whatever that capacity that looks like, I'm going to be doing ministry, whether that's working at my church for free or doing ministry in whatever vocation I am in. And there's still times to struggle with that because I, I see my friends that I went to school with. I see my friends yeah. that I grew up with and they are in those settings. And sometimes my heart longs for that because to be, yeah, to be in a church setting all the time would be great. Like to not, to be doing something, trying to write the environment the like every day. But it's been in those moments outside, whether it's been the bank or with this after school program through the YMCA um, and God providing me with opportunities to be a minister in, in a setting that's where people, some people would never go into a church building. Yeah. Showing them that I care about you and I, and this is why I care about you. You can have a big impact, and sometimes I think you can have a bigger impact in in doing that than if someone were to walk into the church for a service one Sunday and you know you briefly talk to somebody. Sure. So yeah, it's definitely been checkered and messy, messy path along the way um, in terms of just what it's it's not been clean and. It's not been what you, I guess, the stereotypical way that people go about it, uh, but it's helped having you and then our, and our friend Amy. We kind of all had very yeah. similar paths, and yeah. um, it helps that God's provided us with those friendships to kind of encourage and help us see that we're not alone in what we're we're trying to figure out. Yeah, and that, that sense of knowing you're not alone. I mean, everybody, you know. God is with you. God's walking with you. Yeah, I get that. But there's something about the human mm-hmm. contact that really does make, it really makes it real that you're not going through this alone. And God is God is with you in the presence of these friendships. I would struggled along, you know, you mentioned seeing people that you went to school with who were doing the church thing. And that would, it got frustrating to me too. And for me, there was there was an issue of pride that came in a lot of different ways. But one of the things that, I, I, when I was finally able to really be honest with myself, it was like there was this sense of I've been doing this my whole life in some way, shape, or form. Like I didn't have a some event and some thing that happened in college where I felt called to go. It was like I've felt this yeah. thing my whole life, and I've been doing this stuff my whole life. And why am I not doing that? Mm-hmm. And then I one of the things that kind of resounded I hadn't read the Chronicles of Narnia in years but there's a moment where I think it's in The Horse and His Boy the the boy asks what happened to the girl to Aslan and he says I'm telling you your story not hers mm-hmm. and she asks the same thing later and he says this is your story not his and just really remembering that no I'm not doing what they're doing but they're not doing what I'm doing either. Going to that the New Room Conference in the fall was one of the big things where I went and all of these people, that there were a lot of people that we went to school with, and I can remember thinking, I don't want to, I'm, I'm ashamed to talk to these people because I'm not where I thought I would be. Yeah. And I was kind of, you know, I'm doing a different kind of job, and every single person was that's great. Like you must have some really great opportunities to be doing stuff. And I thought (laughs) I do. What have I been missing? Mm -hmm. And interestingly, my friend Heath, who who owns the company I work for, he was one of the folks and he's, he doesn't do the church thing. He's able to see things from somebody who's, who's not involved with ministry at all. And has been able to see things that I haven't seen because I've been, too focused on myself and you know he said you know there's a there's a lot of folks that 
you get to see and come in contact with that I know, you know you've made an impact on who will never go to church ever and I remember him telling me that and thinking I've been so wrapped up in my own frustration yeah. and pride that I'm missing a lot of really great opportunity to do stuff Yeah, and it's been a I mean it's been a cool journey even since then about what that means and we'll probably circle back around to that in a minute so even in seminary like I was always kind of intrigued by the fact that God comes as Jesus and Jesus is not a Pharisee or a Sadducee he's not one of the religious leaders he's raised as a carpenter and he sets out in ministry and the people he chooses to be his companions in ministry were not religious leaders they were fishermen and tax collectors and and they were regular folks. And it was interesting to me that Paul was, you know, one of the clergy of his day. And it wasn't until he renounced all of that that he really became a minister for the gospel. And that kind of reversal of what you would expect. And I would always encourage other people in that, and I never really would own it for myself until, you know, a lot of those other things happened. So in the eyes of the world, they weren't part of the clergy, but they were definitely in ministry. And one of the things that I've really tried to own and explain to people is that the church has a responsibility to help people realize that ministry is not, on the one hand, only the responsibility of the clergy, nor is it some protected right of the clergy. Like I remember having a conversation with a guy because I had been serving communion to the church that I'd been appointed to serve. And I'm not, I was not, I'm not ordained in the Methodist Church. And I grant that, the Meth, that any denomination has certain rules for what they're doing. And it wasn't out of disrespect that I was doing it, but it was just this, the way that it was, the way that the guy said it was, you know, that's protected, but, you know, that's, that's a protected right of the clergy. I'm like, it's not, though. Even if it is the, that's the case in this denomination, it's not the case in the yeah. kingdom of God. And that's really who I'm here to serve. Now, if I'm if I'm doing that and it's it's bothering somebody in in that context, okay. But it wasn't, and it really struck me that we've we've done a disservice in the church of stratifying ministry. That ministry is this thing that those people do, and some people in the church they think it's those people's job, so they don't even want to touch it. And there are other people who think that those people are special or more important because they do. And neither one of those things are true. What are your thoughts on that? Like we, we always talk about there's Christian artists, there's Christian musicians, there's these things that we call Christian. But you never you hardly ever hear someone talk about a Christian banker, or a Christian truck driver, or a Christian school teacher. Mm-hmm. But I think we need to be more aware of the fact that as Christians those are the places yeah. where we're to be in ministry. Yeah, and I, I think um, <clears throat> part of this comes at our our ability as Americans that we've had to compartmentalize church. And I, I, I say it all the time, it's my, one of my sayings, like, you go to church, you are the church, you don't go to church. We, because we've made it so easy to go to church, to this physical building, and we've kind of, not all there's still like tons of great communities church communities out there that you know they're doing life together and that's where i think you start to foster and build up in people you you recognize their callings in their life regardless of you know what what vocation it falls in but when you're when you all you go is to a building once a week or twice a week you're not actively throughout the week encouraging each other and finding out you know what what gifts has God given you? What is the calling? Because everybody has a call in their life. It's not just the people that get up and preach at, at the church building. It's not just the people that get up and lead worship or do the prayer service. Everyone has a calling on their life. And it's in the midst of community. And that's why it's so important to be, as a church body, to be living life together, breaking bread together, spending time together, having fun together, crying together, and, and sharing each other's joys together. And it's once we start to find out, okay, you know what, you are passionate about teaching or you are passionate about, you know, accounting. How can you use that 
to be a tool for the kingdom of God? How can you be in that environment, in, in that context, be a person that touches as many people as possible to show, hey, I love Jesus? And it's in the midst of that community, I, I think that you would start to see that more and you would start to have people identify, yeah, I'm in ministry. I'm in ministry as a teacher to a bunch of kindergartners. I'm in ministry as a truck driver spending, you know, however many hours on the road. But every person I come in contact with is an opportunity for me to share who Jesus is. Yeah. And it doesn't mean you have to, doesn't mean you have to open up the Bible and have Bible studies. And exactly. Because Jesus, he didn't, kind of oversimplifying, but it wasn't like Jesus went around all the time quoting scripture to people. Like he went to where people were, and even sometimes in spite of who they were. I mean, I'm, the uh, the whole thing about Zacchaeus, that story is interesting to me because he goes to Zacchaeus' house, and he he breaks bread with him before Zacchaeus says, I'm wrong. Before he says, I've been wrong to these people, I'm going to pay it back. Jesus goes and shows him love anyway. Like prior to the prior to any sort of redemption turn in that story, it's just connecting with somebody who no one's connecting with, yeah. who people are neglecting, or who because of whatever reason they they don't want to go to church, or no one's coming to them. And definitely that idea that we're not called to go to church, we're called to be the church and to go do like to to go out and be the church. And that's what, you know, that's what really changes people. Even, you know, prior to the whole thing about why we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. You've got Christ living that out by, I'm going to go love these people even before they repent, even before they Mm -hmm. say, yeah, I'm wrong. Yeah, Um, and I know like, I mean, just this happened actually just yesterday. I was stopping by the, the YMCA branch that, uh, my after school program runs through and uh, the sports guy, the sports, the guy that's in charge of all the sports, he was, it had just rained pretty hard the night before and he was literally out on the field with two sponges in a bucket so, sopping up puddles of water because he didn't want the games to be canceled uh, today, which is hmm. Saturday. And because they already had to cancel a couple weeks because of various different things. And for me in that moment, it was... This guy's out there. It's not clearly wasn't part of my my job description. It's like how can I serve him in this moment? And so it was I'm going to go over there and help him sop up a bunch of puddles and get my shoes muddy because he needs to know that I care about him enough to get dirty for him. And that you know I nothing may ever come of that, but at least. You know, a week from now, two weeks from now, he knows that there was nothing, t- no agenda tied to that. There's not, I don't expect anything in return from him. Yeah, and no harm can and, come and That at least opens a door for me to have conversations with him that, you know, because he knows on some level I care about him and that I want to do things for him yeah. and serve him. I think that, you know, ultimately that's what, as Christians, we need to, to find wherever wherever God has placed us in any given moment, God, where in, in this day, in this specific day, where are you moving? Because God is always moving every part of our day. Right. It's whether we notice it and see it or not. Where can I take advantage of how you want to use me today? Because if you go a day where, without God using you, my opinion is that it's not that God didn't want to use you that day. It's because you missed the opportunities he's presented. Yeah, And there, I can't, the amount of times I've missed what God has probably given me is probably too many times to count. And so it's just realizing, and thankfully I have, you know, I have parents that remind me almost daily, like, make today the best day it can be and, yeah. and, and make sure you are taking advantage of what God is doing. My parents growing up would always say, they'd wake us up and say, today's going to be a great day. Like that was always the first thing you'd hear. And even on days when you don't, feel like that if that's the first thing you hear during the day it's really hard not to at least feel mm-hmm. somewhat of encouragement like the idea that there are opportunities all around and one of the things that's been kind of become my go-to phrase is that the kingdom of God is is all around us mm-hmm. and it's our job to pull back the curtain and yeah. reveal it and it doesn't mean that we have to, it doesn't mean that we're necessarily even get to see the result of that like 
I feel like we get too caught up <clears throat> in wanting to see the result. I think that's part of, at some level, that's kind of the, when people talk about wanting their church to grow, and I definitely think that God wants the kingdom to grow, and I don't think it's wrong for a church to grow, of course, but I think there is some level in the human obsession with that, Yeah, that it's, we want to know that what we did made a difference. Because we want to know if we succeed or fail. Yeah, and the thing is, God doesn't, there's nowhere in scripture where it says, and I'll let you see the score when it's over. Mm-hmm. God promises to to deliver and to make things happen, but it doesn't say, and you get to see it. I mean, it's it's you act in faith, and the thing you do may make a difference 20 years from now, you know, 300 miles away, and you'll never know it. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't matter, because the thing you did is what made the difference. And whether you get to see it or not, it doesn't change the fact that in that moment, the kingdom was revealed yeah. and sometime later it will come back. I, that moment will come back and mean something to the person or to the people or to the event that made the difference. The body of Christ, the, that image is so beautiful because it talks about, you can't say to another part of the body, I don't need you because you're not, you don't serve the function I serve. And at the same time, it means you can't say, because I don't serve that purpose, I'm not as good. Yeah. And I've seen both of those mindsets. In the church, I've seen them in myself. But I think that's another thing that has hindered a lot of people from really seeing what they do as ministry. Because, yeah. well, because I'm not called to be a pastor, I must not be as important in ministry. Yeah, you are you're probably more important because you're on a daily basis. You're probably more engaged with people who won't come see a pastor. Mm -hmm. And that's not a knock on people who are, I mean, both of our dads are pastors and we've both been pastors or in pastoral roles. So it's not that I think there's anything wrong with that, obviously. But the fact is that if your job is the daily running of a church or you know, doing that kind of stuff, there are certain people who you will not come in contact yeah. with unless you go make a very deliberate effort, but then that might mean neglecting some of your other duties. What disarms people when, if if I say, hey, I'm a after-school program director, then if I say, hey, I'm a pastor, right. people approach it differently. And well, it's like we talked about earlier, yeah. like people's perception immediately changes. Their guard goes up, their whole sense of who they are. Yeah, Like, you don't get to see the... Sometimes you don't get to see the real person. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it, too, is I think some people, it's not even that they feel insecure, but there are there are also the people in ministry who want to ram it down your throat and you know make an issue of it. And I think some people just don't want to deal with that. It's like um, there's a woman I've come in contact with in some of the networking groups I'm part of for work. And we'd seen each other you know, once a month for a year. And she had asked me to get involved on some of the other stuff. And it was just really cool. It was very encouraging. And then she, one day, just in the middle of a conversation, like tried to sell me on her product. And it was one of those moments where I don't, she's a very kind lady. And I don't think that she's insincere. But just in that moment, it was so odd because I thought, why are you doing that? Was the past year, like, you buttered me up to make this pitch? And that's cynical, and it's... um, But I only bring it up to say that there are people who've had that experience with people in ministry where they're not really interested in who they are. They want you to come to their church and be a part of this thing, and the whole friendship is based on what that person can get out of you later. And I think that's another thing that really shuts people down. If they hear you're in ministry, they think, I don't... I don't want to be asked to teach Sunday school mm-hmm. or I, I don't want to go to your church or whatever. And it's sad that that's where things have come to, but I think that's part of the motivating factor there. And then also uh, I've been struck by, we think, we think of people who lead a church and the senior pastor of a church is the pastor and they're probably always going to be the person preaching and they're the person you know, 
leading in very outward and visible ways. And I've kind of wondered, is that really an appropriate model? Because I know some people who are great leaders who can motivate and encourage and empower and direct traffic who cannot speak in public, either because they're just not any good at it or because they're scared to death of Mm -hmm. it. I've known people who have a very good heart for people and can comfort anybody through anything who can't lead, who are not called to lead. I know people who are great speakers who cannot relate to a human being on a personal level at all. And all of these people are like the senior pastor of a different church. And I think there, maybe there's something to, you know, if there's somebody who's the senior pastor or whatever it is at a church, their job doesn't always have to be those specific things because there might be people who God is equipped or raising up. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Have you seen that kind of thing play out? Well, yeah, I think, yeah, because I think the way, because kind of the business model that a, a lot of churches have adopted from the business world, it's, almost, it's you know, the hierarchy, you know, the top person down. And because of the way, just the nature of running, you know, programs or whatever, you end up having to wear a lot of different hats. And honestly, it's one of the reasons why the traditional setting of ministry on some level was it was a turn off and is some reason why it's hard for me because it's like I have certain gift sets that the, that make up the pastoral role. I also have certain weaknesses that there are expectations in certain churches that a pastor has to carry on that I'm just not good at. And but that pastor because of the salary they make or just the nature of the position is like you have to do all of these things. It's like I'm not gifted at all of this. Well, and it's like trying to make somebody be the whole body. Yes. Like making somebody who is an eye also be a mouth and an ear and a hand and a foot. It's like, well, but maybe there are other people who could be doing that, and maybe we do actually need each other. And, and that's not to say, like, there's not certain times where we have to step outside of our comfort zone and sure. do things. Because like, I do think sometimes you, you have to do that. But I think you tend to see people that get burnt out when they're constantly having to do something that's outside of their, their gifts, outside of what they're equipped to do. Or they're just getting spread thin. Yeah. And and so I, I, I don't know what that, in a perfect world, how you know how you can actually make that work in, in that setting. Because I'm sure there's way smarter people that have, have thought of those things than me, and this is kind of the model that we have. But... I know that that's not ultimately the the perfect way and whether that perfect way is able to be achieved, I don't know. I do think that uh, it does, when you you see, you know, churches mess up here and there or pastors mess up here and there, I think it is sometimes as, as a result of, man, I have no, like, for an example, I have no, like, administrative skills but I have to keep all the the, you know the books at the church because who else is going to do it if I don't do it and then what if you know they get in trouble for some type of tax thing you know it's you're wearing a lot of pressure yeah and so um, (laughs) no big deal just don't yes (laughs) you're just going to go to jail because of the IRS but so it's just one of those things where you need to take advantage of all the different gift sets that make up your body and mm-hmm. that make up the community of people that you have. And that doesn't mean ram square pegs and circle holes because we, we we love our programs at churches and we all have to have every type of program. And, well, if, you know, sometimes you may not have someone that can do a certain program and so don't ram someone in that position. Find out what your people are good at and put them in those positions and you'll see your church grow. And I mean by grow, I don't necessarily mean by number, I mean by... Growing and growing, what that means, yeah, adding depth to the people that are already there, you know, cultivating people and then sending them out. One of the things that my dad was always really gifted at, my dad was usually at churches the size of about 200 people, but my dad was an extremely gifted speaker. And, but my, my dad's greatest strength was developing leaders. Yeah. And it was he developed people and then they went out. And I always saw that from the world's perspective, oh, you're a pastor of a 200-person church. 
well, how successful is that? Well, yeah, but when you look at the fact that over 100 people that he has mentored have become pastors, that is a big deal. Yeah. And it's just what we need, like, how, how are we growing the kingdom and stop, stop being focused on numbers necessarily, but, you know, when we start taking advantage of all the gifts that, that make up our community, you will see that growth. And you may only be a church of 30, but you may be a strong church of 30 that does something awesome. And so I, it's... Yeah, and that, that is an interesting point of the whole... Like, the important thing in ministry is learning to understand what growth and strength really are. Because there is that element that we overlook. There could be a church that has 3,000 members and is effectively useless. 3,000 members get together once a week, maybe twice a week, and then they leave. Yeah. And to the world around them, so what? And then there are the congregations that are 100 people, 200 people, 75 people who find ways to make a mark. <clears throat> I remember at the church I served when I lived here, it was not a big church. And because of location and because a lot of the people in the church were older, they couldn't go out and do a lot of stuff. And there weren't a lot of younger people in the church, you know. But they were very committed to the people around them. And so they had a ministry where they'd send cards and flowers to anybody who'd lost somebody whose family member had died. And they would make desserts or send dinner. And it made a difference to the people around them, you know. And that, mm-hmm. they were a deep, they were a congregation that was very serious about their faith. And they were committed to each other. And they they were a family of people um, who weren't all family. I learned as much about what it means to be a body of Christ from them as they possibly could have learned about the Bible from me. Yeah. And it is, I think we do do ourselves a disservice when we get focused on the one thing and not other things where it's, we got to get more people coming. Well, how much are you investing in the people who are already there? Because if you're not growing numerically, maybe God's trying to tell you there are other ways to grow. And yeah, I think just the growth in numeric, it's just such an easy, tangible way to measure yeah. that that's why we fall into that trap. Yeah, and it, it makes sense. I mean, I don't, I'm not saying it's completely wrong. I yeah. mean, the church, I mean, in the book of Acts, they give yeah. numbers of where people came, and that's... What's interesting is they talk about how many people came to the faith, but they never say where they went to church. Exactly. You know, I mean, how, I mean, they didn't do church like that the same way, but I mean, it wasn't as much about, you know, weekly attendance then. It was about how many people are coming to this realization and this understanding of yeah, who God is. And I, my approach has always been, if if I'm a pastor of a church and I lead someone to Christ, but then they get to another church. Yeah, exactly. All power to you. Because my biggest concern is, I want you to know Jesus. Now, if there's a better place for you to serve or where God can use you, go there. I'm, I, I'm not going to wrap my pride into you leaving. Like that's not because that's not my glory. That's God's glory. I had, I tried to get together when I was serving that church. I wanted to get together with some of the other pastors in the community, and the pastor of the the big Methodist church in town was a woman. And I had met with her, and I said, you have this, you know, what if we all partnered together and we came up with, like, a little pamphlet that we could give out to our, we all pitch in to get it printed, and basically it would give a rundown of all the different churches in the community. So if there are people who we meet who don't go to church, we're not harping on them to come to ours, but we're saying, look, this is a a meaningful part of being human. Um, This is something that, God wants from us is community and relationship with each other. Here's a place you might go if you don't want to come to my church. Here's what the other churches are. Because somebody may not want to come to my church, but they may feel comfortable in the other one. And some, you know, and it was amazing. She said, it's a great idea. She said, it's not going to work here. And I said, why? And she said, because there are enough pastors of churches who won't send anybody here because I'm a woman. And it just, that, I mean, I don't even want to turn it into a conversation about that, but I just thought, surely you, 
you don't see the harm in the ministry she's doing because her ministry speaks for itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, the church is doing great things. And can you at least admit that God's still doing something, even if the pastor's a woman? Like, it was just an interesting. Yeah. Um, I can't remember how I got on that topic, but. Yeah, and I think, because I, I think our generation, so like the millennial generation, the tail end of Gen X, for us, as a, and I, I think this is one reason why you see denominations are declining, is we, whereas denominations were divide, 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 oh, we disagree on how you serve communion, let's yeah. divide. Millennials are saying, as a whole, at least in my experience, I can't, I mean, I guess I can't speak for everyone in my, in my generation, but at least the people I've come in contact, it's what, what unites us, what brings us together? Why can't we maybe disagree on some some secondary theology, but dude, we're still on the same team. Yeah, because the thing that unites us is far far greater. Is way bigger than those other things that divide us. I mean the the idea of a God who creates a world just out of sheer love of creation, who sees the world going astray, does everything he can to bring it back to the point that he enters into the fold suffers and dies and then conquers death and are you on board with that story or not yeah all right yeah then that's all i need to know yeah that's so let's i don't care how much water you use when you baptize somebody i don't care what you think what happens to welch's grape juice and bread (laughs) after an incantation is set over it let's just get to work yeah let's bring the kingdom together and um and what does it say and, and it's rhetorical but what does it say to a world that's already broken and confused and skeptical of the church when we have a story that's so amazing of salvation and redemption and hope in the midst of despair and we're getting we're getting pissed off at each other over <laughs> over for thousands of years for 2000 years we've done nothing but find ways to nitpick and fight mm-hmm. over each other and like there are things that there I I don't agree with that other people uh, believe, but at the end of the day, I think are they going to tell the gospel story or not? Yeah. I mean, like Paul talked about that that you know whether in pretense or truth that the gospel's proclaimed. Yeah. So what? And I'm at the point now where I think I I don't want to have the conversation about that stuff. Yeah, so it's like this story is more important yeah. than that. You don't want to use wor- instruments in worship. More power to you. Fine. Are you going to talk about Jesus? All right. Awesome. Good. <laughs> You're... Somebody will go to your to exactly. your church, and if they hear it from you, fine. Yeah, and so and that's where like you know I just to me that's why I, I've always why my feelings have always been yeah like again if I someone comes to Jesus through some sermon I preach or some conversation I have with them and. And I'm lucky enough to be a part of that moment. And then they're like, hey, I'm, I'm going to go to this church. I'm not going to take that personally. Like, it's... Because it's never about It's not, yeah, it's you. not about me. It's not, like, it's about glorifying Jesus. And how does that best happen? It's just, obviously, and uh, I mean, I'm guilty of moments of having pride in or my brokenness. And, and that's going to happen. Um, but we got to find ways to get over those things and um, then I think you start to see powerful change take place right and the, I mean the things that we get really upset and divided over and I get upset and can set myself against somebody just as easily but you also got to think that um, you know the end result is in God's hands anyway and if something is, if if God really does care about one thing or the other, then at the end of the day, the fruits will be, I mean, the, the truth of it will, will either bear fruit or it won't. And kind of a, a letting go of the need to be right and the need to convince somebody that they're wrong. Mm-hmm. Maybe they are. And maybe I am. And it's not to be, like, I'm not trying to be even a universalist about it, but if I'm right, it's not because I'm right. 
if I'm right, it's because God's right. Mm-hmm. And and if I'm wrong, it's not it's not because the other person's right. It's because what I believe stands out of character with what what is aligned with God. And it kind of in one sense is liberating because it then it takes takes the pressure away from me to be the right one, mm-hmm. to be the person that's right in the situation. And it also takes the pressure off the if I find that I am incorrect, it takes away the animosity because I'm not wrong because this person won the argument. I'm wrong because I'm wrong mm-hmm. and I need to get right. And that's been a, a big realization that's kind of freed up a lot of my preoccupation with, you know, trying to argue with people. I mean, there are times when there's, it's appropriate to have those discussions and, and stand your ground, but there, you know, most of the time it's like, look, the world out there needs, needs the gospel, and they don't care about these other issues right now. They care about how they're going to make it through the next week and mm-hmm. not lose hope. And that's our job, just to give them that. Yeah. Um, well, I guess just kind of winding it down, like, do you... Are you at a place where you're you're comfortable in your skin in ministry? Are you, are you at a place where you're still longing? Where, you know... I don't even, not necessarily, where do you see yourself, but, I mean, how was it with your soul? I would say, yes, in the sense of comfortable in that when I'm in my moments of, I know where where God's, where God has led me, I know where God is leading me, I know how God is using me, um, and I'm comfortable in that, but there are also days where it can be tough. And and I would just as any, if anyone listens to this and ever has doubt about their call, I would say because it's easy. The seeds of discontent start when we would do comparison. And the biggest thing you need to know is, mm-hmm. at least from me and from you and many others, is that we all struggle with our call in some form of fashion, and we all are frustrated. And sometimes we feel like we don't know where where we're going. And sometimes we just like, man, God, just if you just lay it out for me. I would do yeah. whatever it is, but that's not faith. And it's just like we want it so bad on our own timetable. But yeah, I, I'm, if God says, Nathaniel, this is where I'm keeping you for, for the rest of your days, I can be okay with that. Doesn't mean I won't have days where I may like desire something else just in the midst of you know my own human brokenness. But at the same time, I also know that just as easy as I am in the position I'm in, tomorrow could be a different day. Yeah. And God might present me with a completely different opportunity. All I know is my present reality is not going to be my reality for forever. Because it's just yeah. how God may change my 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 life's past. It, it's, who knows? But comfortable, yeah. But also, at times, so frustrating, yeah. But it's in those moments that... I, you have to surround yourself with people that are going to build you up and encourage you. That you, it's important to be honest with when you are struggling, why you're frustrated or, or sad, and, and making sure that God's put people in your life to be like, encourage with the things that God, you know, has blessed you with and has given you. And so, you know, it, it would be great to just say, "Hey, every day's great," but it's just not reality. But I fully believe that I am ordained by him and in whatever environment or context I find myself in that is where I will be most happy Yeah, and that's where I'll be most content and as long as I stay focused on that everything will fall into place and that doesn't mean my life's going to be perfect it doesn't mean that whatsoever it doesn't mean everything's going to always be great but what that does mean is that I will bring the greatest glory to him right and ultimately, that's all I care about. I want to be whatever I can to bring glory to Him. I just I hope for more, you know, more better days than bad days. But and so far, that I would say that that is the case. And the biggest thing is to say like, I I always want wisdom in life. Hopefully, I'll, God will continue to bless, bless me with people to pour into me. And I'm not too foolish to think that I know everything now. And that five years from now, I may look back at where I am today and yeah. be like, man, 
We may listen to this in yeah. five years. Yeah. Like, like, what idiots? Yeah. Who are those two jokers? Yeah, you, you, there's so much you have to learn still. But thankfully, uh, we, we do have a God that's patient. And so, yeah. um, and he's been very patient with me in, in this journey and um, very patient as I help to understand what my call is and what it looks like. You know, I'm just grateful he, I, he doesn't have the same patience that I have. Yeah. I mean, it just as a word of encouragement, I mean, your friendship, Amy's friendship, my good friend Natalie, Derek, who's the pastor at the church I go to, I think of a hundred other people. But those, I mean, the people that God gives us in relationship are so important. But your friendship is one of those over the years that has really given me a sense of strength, just seeing how faithful you are to what God is calling you to do. And even in the face of frustration and the face of disappointment that we both had, there's, there's one element where it's like, well, at least I know that I'm not miserable by myself, <laughs> but, um, and that, and that's true, but there's all just seeing somebody who I love and respect keep that sense of hope and that sense of faith and that sense of determination even when you're not patient has been an endless source of strength for me and I've been blessed by that so if nothing else I mean your ministry is playing out (laughs) in Georgia 400 (laughs) miles away so I would be I say that as a word of encouragement to you for sure and thanks for agreeing to do this yeah, been been awesome. I can't wait for the, the next a, a, episode two. It's like episode the, two. the Empire Strikes Back exactly. of, of the podcast. Yeah, so we'll have to do a third one and hopefully not Return of the Jedi it up. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully it'll, it won't be like the Godfather tree. <laughs> Awful. Um, cool. Well, uh, thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Southern Reverend. Special thanks again to my good friend Nathaniel Cheeks for coming on and being a part of this, even if it has been four years' wait to get it off the ground. For more from Southern Reverend, including more episodes of this podcast and some of my written musings, visit www.southernreverend.com. You can find me on Instagram at the handle Southern Reverend and by searching on Facebook for Southern Reverend. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd appreciate it if you shared it with your friends and families and co-workers and total strangers, whoever, and help me get the word out. And come back next week for another episode. Until then, y'all have a great week. Take care and be good to one another.